5.30 p.m. Friday, October 1st, 1909. Swope Mansion, 406 South Pleasant Street, Independence, Missouri. James Moss Hunton dines alone in the huge dining room of the cavernous Swope Mansion. Although Cousin Moss, as he is known to the family, has felt unwell for several days, he is not one to let an upset stomach overcome his natural friendliness and good manners. So when Pearl Keller, a private nurse to his cousin, multi-millionaire developer Thomas Hutton Swope, passes by the dining room, he politely asks her to join him. Shortly after, the lady of the house, Mrs. Margaret Swope, widowed sister-in-law of Thomas, returns home from an afternoon of calling on friends with her daughter, Mrs. Frances Hyde. Suddenly, Cousin Moss announces, I feel so peculiar. Everything is so dizzy before me. Nurse Keller attends to him in the library while Mrs. Swope summons the family doctor and Frances's husband, another physician, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde. Cousin Moss's condition rapidly deteriorates. Both doctors agree that he is suffering a cerebral hemorrhage. The accepted treatment at the time is to bleed off the patient to lessen the pressure on the brain. An incision is made in the patient's arm and he is allowed to bleed for a time. This has no helpful effect and Cousin Moss is dead by 8.30 p.m. that night. According to Nurse Keller, only 20 minutes later, as she is preparing the body for the undertaker, Dr. Hyde pulls her aside and says, as soon as you have some leisure, I want to have a private talk with you. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan 
who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. This is part two of the epidemic of murder case on the Prison City Murders podcast. If you haven't listened to part one, it will be hard for you to understand what's going on in this part. So I strongly recommend that you go back and listen to part one. Here's a brief recap. As I said in part one, my primary source for this case is Giles Fowler's excellent book, Death on Pleasant Street. The wealthy Swope family is having a terrible holiday season in 1909. Two close family members, Cousin Moss Hunton and Uncle Thomas Swope, both died suddenly just days apart. The cause of their deaths is chalked up to stroke and old age. However, Nurse Pearl Keller has her suspicions that the husband of Thomas's niece, Frances, Dr. B. Clark Hyde, may have hastened their deaths. Multimillionaire Thomas leaves a considerable fortune to his nieces and nephews upon his death. In December, several members of the family are suffering from an odd, isolated outbreak of typhoid fever. The group of private nurses employed at the Swope Mansion are all becoming suspicious of Dr. Hyde and his intentions toward his wife's family members. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Saturday morning, December 18th, 1909, is a sunny day. At 7 a.m., Anna Houlihan is giving a cheerful young Margaret her breakfast when Dr. Clark Hyde comes in to check on the patient. He looks over the medications Dr. Twyman has prescribed and picks up one of the boxes of pills. He asks if Margaret has been taking these, and Nurse Houlihan says yes, and describes the schedule for those pills and goes over her notes about the case with him. Frances enters the room and tells the nurse that her breakfast is ready in the dining room. So Anna leaves the room with Margaret chatting happily with her sister and brother-in-law. When she returns about 8 a.m., she bathes her patient and cleans the room and realizes it's time for one of Margaret's medications, the one Dr. Hyde had just asked about. Margaret takes it and settles back against her pillows. About 20 minutes later, Anna sees Dr. Twyman arrive and start walking up the driveway. Then without warning, Margaret goes rigid with her eyes unnaturally wide open and she's muttering unintelligible things. The nurse grabs her arm to check her pulse and can't find one. She shouts for the doctor to come up immediately. By the time Dr. Twyman gets to the room, Margaret is having a severe convulsion. To Anna Houlihan's mind, exactly like the one Pearl Keller described Thomas Swope having. While the doctor works frantically to save her, injecting morphine and nitroglycerin, her skin takes on a bluish cast. 
cyanotic blue. Pearl Keller points out to Dr. Twyman that this is the third time a patient has convulsed like this in the house. The convulsion lasts over 15 minutes. Finally, Margaret vomits up a milky white substance, which Nurse Gordon catches in a bedpan and later transfers to a bottle, which she seals and conceals under the sink in the bathroom. After about two hours, Margaret is stabilized and falls into a deep sleep. As he tells it, the incident left Dr. Twyman feeling shaken and frustrated. The sicknesses and scary surprises were getting out of hand. I needed help. He asked Maggie to arrange for another physician to help him. Then he summoned by the nurses for a meeting from Death on Pleasant Street. Before they could open their mouths, he said, Girls, I know what you are going to say. Keller came right back at him. No, not about calling them girls, about what's going on in the mansion. Doctor, you don't know all, and we can't stand it any longer. That morning, they had huddled in pairs and threesomes, venting their anger and consternation among themselves, sternly as though reciting the articles of a criminal indictment. Keller spelled out for Twyman each one of the nurses' causes against Hyde. She spoke of the capsules the three similar convulsions, the doctor's midnight injection of something into Margaret's arm, and, of course, the typhoid outbreak, which they had no doubt was Hyde's wicked doing. It was all too much for Twyman. He said he could see, he could not see, how any man could be so low on the scale of humanity as to think of such an enormous crime. Then Nurse Keller put everything on the line. Now, Dr. Twyman, you may talk all you please. You are not going to convince us at all because we think we know that Dr. Hyde is responsible for the death of Colonel Swope and Chrisman Swope and the inoculation of the family with typhoid. What it came down to was that the nurses would not, could not stand by in the Swope Mansion to see the whole family murdered. They would give Dr. Twyman until morning to devise a plan for ridding the house of Bennett Clark Hyde. If he goes, we will stay, Keller said. If he stays, we go. Now, Dr. Twyman consults with John Paxton, the Swope family attorney, Paxton later recalls that he was, quote, thunderstruck, shocked, and overcome by the whole tale of alleged treachery, unquote. We hope, he hoped um, that it was all a mistake, he says, but he knew whatever was going on, they couldn't ignore the situation. He advises Twyman to let Maggie know what's going on as soon as possible. Maggie later says, quote, all the pieces fell in place at that moment, unquote. She fully understood why the nurses refused to stay in the house with Hyde and, quote, be used as tools toward getting people out of the world, unquote. 
She tells Twyman to order her son-in-law to go. Just then, Frances Hyde came into the room and asked her mother what they were talking about. Frances and Twyman exchange glances. The doctor tells Frances he must speak to her husband as soon as possible. Please tell him to meet me at my office. I'll be there waiting for him. Maggie excuses herself and calls her son Thomas to come to the house to speak with her about an urgent matter. When Hyde arrives at Twyman's office, he's told about the nurse's suspicions. Clark's reaction is, well, what you'd expect. He says, well, that looks pretty bad. That is a terrible accusation. I could sue those nurses for a criminal accusation like that. Twyman talks him out of suing anyone and says, Dr. Hyde, there is but one thing for you to do, and that is to leave. If you don't want this thing to become public, you will have to leave. If the nurses leave, they are going to tell why they left. So ultimately, Clark agrees to leave the mansion and stay away. He goes back to the mansion to tell Francis what's happened, and the two pack up their things. Twyman reports to Paxton what has happened. They are both struck by how calmly Hyde took the matter. Quote, not a single word in his own defense. No stunned incredulity, no furious denials, no demand for an investigation to clear his name, unquote. The lawyer goes to the mansion to talk with Maggie and Thomas. Just as he gets there, Francis and Clark are leaving. It's not recorded exactly what was said, but their departure went something like this. Hyde says, the solution of this difficulty is for me to go, and I am going. Maggie appears surprised that Francis is leaving with her husband. She begs her daughter to stay, but Francis insists she cannot stay with people who are unjustly accusing her husband of something so terrible. Maggie is devastated as they leave to catch the trolley car back to their home in Kansas City. In the meantime, Maggie has packed Lucy Lee off to stay with friends of the family in Independence, the minor family, to, present her, to prevent her coming down with typhoid. However, Lucy Lee has visited a few times and even taken a meal or two with her family. All is going well until she begins to show signs of typhoid on December 22nd. This is about a week since she left New York, accompanied by Clark Hyde on the train. Interestingly, as we said, the incubation period for typhoid before the victim shows symptoms is about a week. This means that she didn't catch typhoid when she got home. She already had it before she got to Kansas City. That is truly a remarkable coincidence. So further suspicion is cast on Clark. He certainly had the opportunity to poison her on the trip. One particular incident stands out in Lucy Lee's mind. Not long after they get on the train in New York, Lucy is thirsty and gets up to go get some water. Before she can do that, Clark jumps up, volunteering to fetch the water himself. 
He even pulls out a little silver folding cup for her, a travel gift from her sister. While he's out in the corridor, it crosses Lucy Lee's mind that he's gone for a very long time. However, he does come back, and when she drinks the whole cup full of water, it didn't taste out of the ordinary. But once people start becoming suspicious of Clark, this little incident comes up, as well as possible times on the trip when he could have infected her with typhoid. Hearing this, John Paxton abandons any hope that Hyde is falsely accused by the nurses, and he becomes a crusader for the truth about what's going on at the Swope Mansion. He arranges with Maggie for Uncle Thomas's and Chrisman's bodies to be exhumed for autopsy. Top experts are brought in for this, pathologists and toxicologists. They are given for analysis the contents of Margaret's stomach, saved by Nurse Gordon, as well as a mysterious capsule, which Thomas says he saw Clark throw in the snow the night he went to meet with Dr. Twyman at his office. Chrisman is the first body to be autopsied. His stomach contents are sent off for analysis. The pathologist is particularly looking for signs of meningitis in Chrisman's brain. This is what Clark had claimed caused his death. Meningitis can be an effect of typhoid. The pathologist finds that Chrisman's brain is, quote, normal in every respect, unquote. Uncle Thomas Swope is autopsied next. This is somewhat problematic because his corpse is frozen solid. Against all accepted protocols, the great expert from Chicago, renowned professor Ludwig Hectorn, goes on with the autopsy. There's a whole team assembled to do the autopsy, but no one can, can come up with a better solution than to just thaw the body out using hot water. This will come back to undermine the case against Dr. Hyde because no less than Dr. Hector in a medical textbook that he wrote advised never to do this because it could lead to unreliable results. Yet he and the rest of the team go on with the autopsy, never mind whatever they find will be virtually useless for any prosecution of Dr. Hyde. Even with that and later analysis that they do, they don't find a definitive cause of death for Uncle Thomas during the autopsy. Meanwhile, Dr. Clark Hyde comes down with, oh, what a surprise, typhoid fever. What better way to make it look like you're innocent of anything going on. Get the disease yourself. Dr. Stewart, our medical detective and friend of Clark's, Dr. John Perkins, are called to the Hyde home where they find him showing signs of typhoid fever, although it does appear to be a very mild case. So mild that it's hard for them to get positive results on the Weidel test. To do the test, you mix typhoid bacteria with the victim's blood, and then you look for um, 
clumps. They call it agglutination. That shows that the blood is full of antibodies that are trying to react to the typhoid infection. This test is still used today, although the Google says it's mainly just in developing countries with less access to modern methods. You can see demos on uh, YouTube. It's, it's interesting. Just Google WIDAL, W-I-D-A-L test. Anyway, in Clark Hyde's case, they're having trouble getting a definitive result. Sometimes they see a tiny bit of clumping, and sometimes they can't find any at all, which is, which is very odd. The only conclusion they can come to is that his case of typhoid is from, quote, very recent introduction of dead or devitalized bacteria into his body, causing an extremely light version, a sort of pale masquerade of the dangerous disease, unquote. How might that happen? Well, Stewart's theory is that Dr. Hyde injected himself from the test tube of what he thought were dead typhoid germs that he himself had put in Hyde's office to replace the vial of the more deadly typhus, typhoid bacteria. Now, up to this time, Dr. Stewart has only confided his suspicions to his wife and to his partner in his medical practice. Dr. Perkins is a respected colleague known as something of an expert in typhoid transmission. So normally, this would be someone Stewart might confide in. But he doesn't quite trust Dr. Perkins. To Stewart, he seems too biased in favor of his friend. However, he does agree to help Perkins try to nail down the source of the infection, which Perkins keeps theorizing about, like it's from dirty lettuce or contamination from a neighbor's privy. Anyway, they do conduct quite a few tests at the mansion, Perkins to show that his friend is innocent, and Stewart to show there's no way the typhoid got into the house except with Dr. Hyde. In the final analysis, they don't ever find anything definitive, which really leaves doubt on both sides. Hyde recovers quickly from his supposed bout with typhoid, considering that the theory is he gave it to himself from what he thought was actual live typhoid. It makes you wonder if that didn't disappoint him a little. Stewart then starts wondering about the tampering he thought he saw in the diphtheria test tube. He arranges with Hyde to take a look at the bacteria tubes at his office, where Stewart pretends he's just noticed that the diphtheria tube looks odd. Hyde, no doubt wanting to appear innocent, has no problem with that. Stewart and a colleague examine the samples and discover that it isn't diphtheria at all. It's just common pus germs, like a couple of the other vials. Listeners, not sure what to think of that. Dr. Stewart is kind of the hero of our story, but it sounds like he might be 
not as careful about the handling of his bacteria specimens as he could be. Anyway, this causes Stuart to come up with another theory. That makes things look even worse for Dr. Clyde, Dr. Clark Hyde. One plausible way to explain young Margaret's infection in her arm is that Hyde thought he was injecting her with diphtheria, also not terribly uncommon in those days, and mistakenly just gave her a badly infected arm from the pus germs instead of another deadly disease. At any rate, the handwriting is on the wall. The powerful and influential Maggie Swope and several doctors and all the nurses are convinced that Dr. Hyde tried to kill his wife's family. In January, a coroner's jury is convened. They try to keep all this under wraps, but the press quickly gets wind of something afoot at the famous Swope Mansion. No one's really talking. Maggie and her family categorically and rudely (laughs) refuse to talk to the press. Attorney Paxton and Dr. Twyman won't give details about the investigation, but it's almost a case of what they don't say that interests the press the most. They don't deny that wrongdoing in the deaths at the mansion is what's undergoing scrutiny. Rumors while the investigation is going on abound. Clark and Francis are well aware of what's happening, as are most reporters in town. The death of Thomas Swope, the multimillionaire philanthropist, is a sensational story. So all the newspapers are very interested. Everyone's waiting on the results of the analysis of the samples taken from the bodies, but that's taking a while, so they speculate in the interim. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch goes as far as naming Clark and saying they have it on good authority that Hyde poisoned both Thomas and Chrisman. The Kansas City papers, uncharacteristically for the Times, are reluctant to print anything but background on the deaths. They scrupulously refrain from mentioning Clark's name, even though he's being mentioned all over town as the target of the investigation. It could be that the papers are afraid of a libel suit. Clark has filed suit against the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which named him and, in writing, accused him of the murders. Maybe, though, crazy as it sounds, The Kansas City papers were just behaving like ethical, responsible journalists. Finally, on February 7, 1910, the coroner's jury begins the formal inquest. At last, the public will find out, at least they hope, what really happened at the Swope Mansion. When the lab reports come back on Thomas Swope, The cause of death is listed as poisoning by strychnine. This is pretty much what nurse Pearl Keller suspected all along. More damaging information is learned about Dr. Hyde's activities that fall. In September 1909, a couple of weeks before Cousin Moss and Uncle Thomas died, 
Dr. Clark Hyde purchased several grams of cyanide from a drugstore in Kansas City where he did all of his drug business. The druggist, Hugo Breckline, was not the one who took the order for the cyanide. It was taken by his assistant. By all accounts, the pharmacist was very conscientious and would undoubtedly have questioned that order from Dr. Hyde. There was no known medical use for cyanide like there was for strychnine. Cyanide was used primarily by jewelers in their work and sometimes for killing animals. That was Hyde's excuse for ordering the cyanide. He told the assistant he needed to kill some stray dogs in the neighborhood. Listeners, strychnine and cyanide are different poisons, although they're similar in that they both are favorites of murderers because even in very small amounts, they're deadly and act very, very quickly. The famous Tylenol murders in Chicago were cyanide poisonings. When the shop assistant shared the story with the pharmacist, they both thought it was very strange. Hearing of the suspected murders, they went to the authorities with the story, backed up by the pharmacy records. They will be among a number of witnesses against Dr. Clark Hyde at the inquest. It doesn't take the coroner's jury long to come up with a verdict. Quote, we, the coroner's jury, find that deceased came to his death by strychnine poisoning. And from the evidence, we believe that the said strychnine was administered in a capsule at about 8.30 a.m. on the day he died by the direction of Dr. Bennett Clark. Hyde, unquote. The prosecutor, Virgil Conkling, and attorney John Paxton, who is assisting him, draw up an arrest warrant. On February 10th, Hyde is arrested at his home. He's expecting the arrest. He has a very good defense lawyer, Frank Walsh, on his side. He also has many supporters and friends who truly believe he's wrongly accused, most prominent among them his own wife. Frances Swope never wavers in her support for her husband, ever. Hyde is granted bond in the amount of $50,000. High, but he is able to post bail and goes home to his wife. A grand jury convenes in April and Hyde's lawyers are somewhat optimistic that they can make a case not to indict. However, there's a reason lawyers often say grand juries can indict a ham sandwich. For those of you who aren't familiar with the United States legal system, grand juries are mainly used by the prosecutor to determine not guilt or innocence, but whether the prosecution has a good enough case, enough evidence, enough witnesses to take a defendant to trial. Something similar but, but different is a preliminary hearing. Neither is required before a full-blown trial, and the rules do vary from state to state, but usually there's one or the other before the trial. Grand juries don't have a judge in charge. Only the prosecutor presents evidence and call witnesses. 
Oh, listeners, disclaimer, I almost forgot, not a legal expert. Um, but I will say I see grand juries as more like uh, fact-finding groups. Um, unlike at a trial, grand jurors can ask questions, and they don't have to be unanimous in their decisions. Grand juries have much more relaxed procedures, and they're not open to the public for a couple of reasons. One, it's believed that people will speak more freely and hopefully truthfully if what they say is kept private. And two, it protects possible defendants in the case when there's no indictment. Now, statistically, grand juries usually do come back with an indictment, hence the ham sandwich comment. Not always. And uh, even if they do recommend an indictment, the prosecutor can still decline to prosecute. A famous case of this is the 1999 grand jury in the famous John Benet Ramsey case. It came to light later. Um, I know I just said the proceedings are supposed to be secret, but somehow all this was revealed. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that happened. Anyway, that that grand jury recommended indicting her parents for the murder, but the DA decided not to go ahead with a trial for whatever his reasons. By contrast, preliminary hearings are usually open to the public and they're run by a judge who is the one who determines whether there should be a trial or not. Plus, both sides present arguments in a preliminary hearing, which does give both sides a chance to learn about the opponent's trial strategy. I think that may be why Prosecutor Conkling decided to go with a grand jury. That way he could give his case a little tryout without showing his hand too much before the trial. If that's the case, I don't think it worked very well. When the grand jury is meeting, defense attorney Walsh is issuing subpoenas and taking depositions from witnesses for Clark's libel case against the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And they've also filed a slander case against the Swope family lawyer, attorney John Paxton. It's kind of amusing to read the newspaper coverage at the time because you have witnesses going right from the grand jury to Walsh's office to be questioned about the same thing they've just talked to in the grand jury room, which is supposed to be secret, but it's definitely not. And Walsh is definitely not shy at all about revealing to the press what they're telling him. My sense is that winning the battle for public opinion at that time is more important to both sides in a way than what the actual facts are. Anyway, the grand jury does announce 11 indictments against Dr. Clark Hyde on March 5th. Two counts of murder in the cases of Thomas Swope and Chrisman Swope, one count of manslaughter in Moss Hutton's case, and eight counts of poisoning, one for each of the typhoid cases. 
In spite of all these indictments, the prosecution decides to only try Hyde for Thomas's murder. They reason that's the easiest case to prove, and the penalty for that is death. So if they can succeed in having him convicted for that, there's no reason to go into the other cases. Listeners, this happens sometimes, and, oh, again, not a legal expert, but um, another part of the reasoning is that if they try all the cases at once and for whatever reason, the defendant gets off, double jeopardy applies. Double jeopardy is the legal principle in the U.S. justice system that holds a defendant who is tried and not found guilty cannot be retried for the same crime. A defendant found not guilty can go out on the courthouse steps and announce to the world that he was really guilty all along and the prosecution can't do anything about it. All kinds of damning new evidence could come to light, new DNA, whatever, and they still can't do anything about it. So sometimes in the case of multiple murders, with an iffy case especially, prosecutors will elect to try the defendant on only one of the cases, just in case something goes wrong at trial and they don't get a conviction. They still have a chance to go after the defendant for other crimes. Again, Clark is arrested. This time, he does end up spending the night in jail, waiting for a bond hearing the next day. His bond is doubled to $100,000, but again, he's able to post bail and go home to Francis. The trial opens with jury selection on April 11, 1910, in Independence, Missouri, at the Jackson County Courthouse. It's a media circus. Reporters from all over the country, standing room only at the courthouse. Those who can't get into the courthouse eagerly wait outside for glimpses of witnesses and lawyers, and especially of Francis and other members of the famous Swope family. Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde's trial for the murder of Thomas Swope begins on April 18th. James Reed is now in charge of the prosecution. He is what we'd call a big legal gun. Think Johnny Cochran if he'd been a prosecutor. Reed is a former mayor of Kansas City and has a well-deserved reputation as a spell-binding speaker. That fall, he will be elected U.S. Senator from Missouri and go to serve three terms in Washington and even run for president. This trial is the pinnacle of his legal career. His opening statement starts like this. In this trial, the state will present such an array of facts that will demonstrate that this crime was planned and carried out in such a way that it could have been done by no other than a skilled physician. The state will prove that the plan was a general one, that it was one with its motive and mainspring, a desire to gain great wealth, and the plan was formed to exterminate the entire Swope family. Whoa, 
right then. Both defense attorneys jump up, objecting. Walsh's very dedicated new associate is named John Lucas. Walsh and Lucas rightfully object because their client isn't on trial for murdering the entire Swope family just for Thomas's murder. In this matter, Judge Latshaw rules... The court believes that nothing except the essential facts should be allowed to enter. However, there are exceptions. And when other crimes are so intimately connected to show a scheme relatively dependent upon it, I believe that the entire matter is admissible. This is huge. As it will turn out, this very first ruling by Judge Latshaw is probably the most important thing that happens at the trial. Listeners, again, not a legal expert, but I'm not sure a judge nowadays would make the same ruling. My sense, anyway, is that judges are very strict about allowing information into a trial when it's not directly related to the specific crime the defendant's on trial for. That includes the defendant being suspected of or even convicted of similar crimes. In fact, U.S. federal rules of evidence prohibit, quote, the introduction at trial of other crimes, wrongs, or acts, unquote. Now, personally, I don't really like that. In my opinion, if a defendant has been convicted of a similar crime, the jury should know that. I think there are times when this type of information does get into the trial, and I would agree with that, but I know there are a bunch of legal hoops the prosecutor has to go through to make that happen. This issue is related to the idea that some information, like graphic crime scene photos, um, are prejudicial meaning it might influence the jury unfairly against the defendant, which, you know, I find um, just wrong. In my opinion, the principle is a problem. The jury is entrusted to make a very serious decision, sometimes life and death. So I don't understand why we don't trust them to not be unfairly prejudiced. To me, all the information there is about the crime should be shown to the jury. It's their responsibility to judge what information they use to make their decision. Of course, I also don't really understand why the jury can't ask questions during the trial, but that's another rant. So um, I'm done. I'm done for now. Let's get back to the case. The prosecution is naturally thrilled about the ruling. They can now throw everything but the kitchen sink at the defense. Truth be told, I'm sure the defense viewed this as a setback, but they're professionals and they don't throw in the towel. They drive on, cross-examining witnesses vigorously, and they have some good successes. Walsh meets mincemeat out of Professor Ludwig Hectern and his ludicrous handling of Thomas's frozen corpse. 
However, he makes very little headway against the formidable nurse Pearl Keller and the other nurses. Plus, the earnest Dr. Edward Stewart makes a, makes a very sincere and convincing impression on the jury. Most observers agree that Keller and the nurses provided the most damning evidence against Hyde, along with what uh, Dr. Stewart had to say. Their testimony is particularly important to the prosecution because one of the most important witnesses against Hyde dies suddenly just before the trial, not, not of poison. Um, Dr. Twyman doesn't recover from emergency surgery. He dies on April 18th. Um, Walsh also tries valiantly to cast doubt on the toxicology reports, which say that strychnine is what killed Thomas Swope, but he can't. He can't shake any of the scientists from the position that their analyses clearly show Thomas Swope was poisoned. The last witness for the prosecution is Mrs. Margaret Swope, our Maggie, who dramatically and tearfully recounts the terrible events at the mansion in late 1909. After she steps down, James Reed rests the prosecution's case. For its part, the defense begins with an excellent expert witness, Dr. Frederick Froling. He, is knowledge, he knowledgeably testifies that convulsions do occur in cases of typhoid fever and that there is a form of meningitis that does not show up when the brain is examined. His opinion, based on the autopsy report, is that the terrible state of both Thomas Swope's kidney and his heart, well, either one of those things could have killed him. Plus, he was very, very old. Reed is not able to shake Dr. Froling in his opinion. Following this, the defense presents a parade of excellent scientific witnesses who score points trying to refute the scientific evidence that the state has presented. Unfortunately for the defense, their, their experts go into minute and really boring detail. And for a very long time, days, there's days of this scientific testimony to the point that the jury is almost numb by the end of it. The last two witnesses are Francis Hyde and the defendant. As expected, Francis adamantly denies pretty much everything anyone, including her own family, says that puts Clark in a bad light. She appears heavily pregnant, even though she's only a few months along. Rumor has it the defense has convinced her to pad her baby bump to generate more sympathy from the jurors. Who knows? They may be right. There's no doubt Frances is determined to do everything possible to save her husband. And she gets the sympathy and a great deal of admiration for her loyalty. However, as one reporter writes, she contradicted word by word and almost syllable for syllable 
nearly every possible bit of evidence which had been introduced by the state against her husband since the trial began. In reality, this is just too much. It's hard to believe that there's not one thing any of the other witnesses said that was true. Unfortunately for the defense, the impression Frances leaves is that she will do anything, including lie on the stand to protect her husband. Clark is the last witness for the defense. He is not the sympathetic figure that Francis is. Under direct examination by Walsh, he is convincing and he agrees perfectly, perfectly with Francis's testimony, almost as if they are reading from the same script, which I'm sure they were. He does well, appearing calm and even-tempered, but this changes when he's cross-examined. Prosecutor Reed doesn't conduct the cross-examination, which surprises people a little. It's done by the more combative Walter Conkling. He hammers rudely. He's very rude to the defendant away at the cyanide evidence. Hyde doesn't have a good explanation for this. He he can't explain in any way that's convincing why he bought the cyanide. He gets very rattled. And when he gets rattled, he gets sarcastic and arrogant. In the words of one reporter, it was a new Dr. Hyde. It was a Dr. Hyde who was plainly self-conscious, who was plainly distressed. It was a nervous man who clutched frequently at his collar as if it hurt him. At the end of Clark's testimony, the defense rests. The closing arguments are much anticipated by the public. Frank Walsh does a very good job in defense of his client. He plays on the emotions of the jury and leaves them in tears by the end of his speech. From death on Pleasant Street, from the first, he directed their sympathies to the lovely, anxious wife seated just behind the defendant. Simply by being there, Francis Hyde was a visual extension of Walsh's theme, the victimization of a piteous innocent. The attorneys laid the true guilt to the wife's own family, eight of whom sat in the front row, I'm sure looking rich and smug. Hyde was the hapless martyr to old hostilities, to suspicions based on faulty memories, and to the imaginings of a group of nurses. And there sat Frances, a good, true, virtuous woman, the second victim of the Swope's injustice. There are hours of speeches in closing arguments, several lawyers from both sides. But the one everyone is waiting for is James Reed, the master orator. According to reporters, thousands almost fought for admission to hear the closing arguments for the state. They struggled in the hallways and fell upon the stairs. They stood for hours to hear the final words and see the final acts in a trial.
that has lasted five weeks. They tore each other's clothing and they resisted the officers of the court. These people will not be disappointed. The reporter for the Kansas City Post gushed without any question of doubt, the most convincing, the most eloquent, the most masterful speech I have ever heard in any courtroom, in any city, in any country, in the world. Reed was more than a logician, more than an orator. He was a wonderful actor in the highest meaning of that word. The expressions of his face, the gestures of his hands, his bearing, his pauses, and the modulations of his voice were those of a man trained by years and years of histrionic labors. The jury deliberates for three days before delivering their verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, B. Clark Hyde, guilty of murder in the first degree, as charged in the indictment, and assess his punishment at imprisonment in the state penitentiary during his natural life. Frances put her arms around her husband and sobbed on his shoulder. They were allowed a few minutes together. As he was led from the courtroom, Clark spoke to the reporters. I have not lost hope. I am innocent of this crime and the others charged against me. I am the victim of a set of terrible circumstances, some of them hard to explain. Other men have suffered this way for nothing, but I have not lost hope. No, sir. Newspapers catch up with the jurors later and question them about what happened in the jury room. At the end of the trial, most observers have the sense that much of the hard-to-understand dueling expert evidence will be pretty much ignored by the jury, and the decision will come down to who is more convincing, the nurses and Dr. Stewart and the Swopes against Clark and Francis Hyde. As it turns out, they're wrong. According to the jurors, it was buying the cyanide that turned them against Hyde. The testimony of the pharmacist turned out to be the most important part of the case for them. They simply could not believe what Hyde said about the cyanide. He buys cyanide before the deaths at the mansion begin, just a couple of weeks before. His first story is that he needs to kill some stray dogs. He later says that he had used cyanide for years to kill cockroaches in his office. Yuck! Cockroaches in a doctor's office. He claimed roaches were an ongoing problem there because of bloody bandages that sat around in the trash waiting for disposal. Again, yuck! But then, where did he get the cyanide all those years he was supposedly using it to kill cockroaches. He couldn't say from Hugo Breckline's drugstore, his regular drugstore, because Hugo testified it was definitely the first time he'd ever bought cyanide from him. 
he would certainly have remembered otherwise. And everyone absolutely believed him. But Clark, as smart as we may think he he is and was, was, let's see, was then and, well, he's dead now, but as smart as we think he might have been, he, he couldn't come up with a single name of another drugstore in town where he might have bought the cyanide over those 10 years he said he was using it. Well, that convinced the jury that he only bought the cyanide that one time and for only one reason, to poison his wife's relatives so she could inherit a fortune. Dr. Hyde's lawyers immediately moved for a new trial, arguing the state didn't prove its case, etc., etc. The defense always does this. The problem is that the judge who rules on the issues is the same judge who was in charge of the trial, and that's Judge Latshaw, the same one in charge of the original trial. He's already shown his disposition to rule in favor of the prosecution. So no one is surprised when the judge denies this motion and sentences Hyde to life in prison. He doesn't have to go off to the penitentiary right away because there's already an appeal pending in front of the Missouri Supreme Court. He gets to stay near home at the Jackson County Jail in September. He and Francis are dealt another crushing blow. Francis goes into labor a little earlier than expected. It's a very difficult labor. And her doctors send for her husband, who's been promised that he can be there for the birth of their first child. But there's some legal wrangling over this that lasts for quite a few hours, and the baby's born several hours before Clark can get there to be with Francis. Almost immediately, tragically, the baby has trouble breathing and dies not long after. To their dying days, both Clark and Francis are bitter about this and blame the baby's death on the authorities. It isn't until the spring of 1911 that the Missouri Supreme Court rules on Dr. B. Clark Hyde's appeal of his murder conviction. It's a very long ruling, but the upshot is the testimony of other alleged crimes should never have been given to the jury, and having been admitted, should have been withdrawn. As we see the very first day of the trial, when the judge ruled in favor of the prosecution, he made the rest of the trial essentially meaningless. There's a new trial for Dr. Hyde that fall, but it has to be stopped when one of the jurors um, has some kind of psychological break. And so they just throw out everything and decide to start over later. Uh, it won't be until uh, almost a couple of years, 1913, that there's a final trial for Dr. Hyde. It ends with a hung jury. Now, there's some talk of another trial, but in reality, the prosecution's just run out of steam by then. 
prosecutor reads off in Washington, D.C., being a senator and a politician, and nobody has the stomach to keep going. The Swope family is to the point they just want everything to be over. Finally, in 1914, a judge dismisses the charge completely. Oh, let's see, either with or without prejudice. I forgot to look that up. That's, let's see, the one that says you can't retry the defendant. Hold on. Okay, okay. With is the one, with prejudice is the one that means everything's over and done with. Without prejudice means the prosecutor could at some future time try the defendant again. Okay, so that is the end of all the legal proceedings against Dr. B. Clark Hyde. Listeners, I don't have much wild speculation about this case. In my opinion, there are basically two possibilities. Either Dr. Hyde poisoned people and made them deathly ill, um, or he's just the victim of bad luck and circumstances. I guess a third possibility might be he did some of the things, but maybe other things were natural. But I don't, all these things are hard to prove. So um, I'm, I'm going to go with what I think. And I lean toward guilty based on buying the poisons and asking for the tubes of bacteria from Dr. Stewart. I just can't think of a legitimate reason for him doing that. I feel kind of like the jury did. Again, not an expert in psychology, but I think he's a psychopath, not the crazy sexual predator type or the bloodthirsty type, um, like, I don't know, Jack the Ripper or BTK, other Ted Bundy. Um, but I think he's the cold-blooded kind of psychopath with no, no real feelings with regard to other people. The type of person that can mimic emotions but not really feel them. I ran across an article that I think sums up Dr. Hyde pretty well. Quote, clever, sneaky, emotionally immature, methodical, and self-centered. Many of them are amazingly skilled at pretending to be something they're not. A doting husband, caring nurse or doctor, or devoted friend. Behind the mask, though, lies a psyche that is propelled by childish needs and unencumbered by moral restraints. To me, that perfectly describes what's going on with Dr. Hyde. It's all about money and what he wants, and he won't let anyone stand in his way to get it. To tell the truth, when I researched this case, 
pretty quickly, I didn't have any doubt that Clark was guilty. But I do want to be a responsible true crime podcaster, so I tried to look at the other side. It's possible that B. Clark Hyde is a guy with the worst luck ever. Well, I guess, or maybe the best luck ever, as it happens. Cousin Moss and Uncle Thomas are elderly, and they're not in the greatest health. Thomas himself thinks he's not long for this world. That they would die on Clark's watch of natural causes, that's not too much of a stretch. The typhoid outbreak, that's not uncommon for the day. Um, Although odd, they would both happen like that right at the same time. Having said that, I think if you look at the whole picture, it wasn't happenstance. The purposeful hand of a malevolent doctor is behind everything that went on at the mansion that fateful year of 1909, in my opinion. Now, I do have one bit of wild speculation. I couldn't help but notice that Mrs. Dr. Hyde, the loyal Francis, is also close by when bad things are happening at the mansion. Is it possible that she was involved in the murders? I I don't think I'll go that far, but I will say that I do think on some level she must have suspected. And I think she just went into a complete state of denial. I think that explains why she was so adamant in her defense of her husband, in spite of flying in the face of what everybody else was saying. Denial is a very, very powerful coping mechanism. She may have felt a little bit of guilt, and the denial helped her deal with that. Um, At the conclusion of his book, Death on Pleasant Street, Giles Fowler relates that he hoped to solve the case. Typical true crime fan. (laughs) But after all his years of research, he didn't do that. He still couldn't be sure what really happened. So he gets a respected toxicologist, no less than Dr. Edward M. Body. I, I'm not sure at all I'm pronouncing that right. I ne- I've never seen this name before. It's B-O-T-T-E-I. He is the director of the Iowa Poison Control Center. And Fowler gives him all the materials he's collected about the case to look them over. What Dr. Body has to say is a great chapter in the book. Of course, he warns that he can't be sure. Uncle Thomas was in frail health. He doesn't have the original results, etc., etc. However, he does say, 
the amount of poison found in Thomas's liver was so high, there is no innocent explanation for it. His theory is this, which he calls, quote, plausible, not perfect, unquote. And listeners, it's a very cold, diabolical scenario. Hyde gives Thomas Swope a capsule with strychnine, but not a lethal dose. The old man is to die swiftly. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The old man is not to die swiftly, but to fail by slow degrees. Witnesses must believe that a stroke did him in, not some rapid-acting poison. After Swope's convulsion subsides, Hyde directs Nurse Keller to give shots of strychnine at intervals of 15 to 20 minutes. Keller and Hyde later dispute the number of injections Swope received. She testifies it was only three. He claims that about five hypodermics of strychnine were given throughout the day. Hyde insists the shots are needed to boost the colonel's pulse, which he repeatedly describes as weak. Just as often, Keller finds it high or normal. In fact, Swope's heart rate is irrelevant to Hyde's true purpose. In sublethal strychnine poisoning, the fierce muscular contractions would be expected to cease in time and the victim to recover. Ugh, oh, listeners, I mean, think of the suffering there. By giving booster shots, however, Hyde assures that the poison's ravages will continue hour after punishing hour, never abating, never quite killing. By evening, of course, the colonel's exhausted muscles can work no longer, and breathing stops. Apoplexy, in quotes, takes another member of the family. Even though he's never convicted of murder, it's not really over for Clark. He has many supporters, but also many people still think he's guilty. His medical career, in Kansas City at least, is over and done with. He and Francis stay together for several years and have a son and daughter. Her money is plenty to sustain them, but Clark Hyde is a prideful man who can no longer practice his profession. Things turn ugly at the Hyde home. Clyde becomes abusive to Frances and the children. In 1920, she files for divorce. She still believes his innocence. At the divorce hearing, the divorce, the judge at the divorce court point blank asks her, was it your action in this matter because you believed or had any suspicion of him being guilty of the crimes charged against him? Francis answers, absolutely not. I absolutely 
believe him to be innocent. A few days after the divorce is granted, Frances and her mother Maggie are reconciled. They will remain close for many years after that. Clark goes back to Lexington, Missouri, where he grew up. He's a ruined man who's taken in by his sister. Eventually, he does set up an ear, nose, and throat practice there. He lives alone in rooms over his little medical office. In 1929, he's interviewed by the Kansas City Star. Don't pity me. Whatever you do, don't pity me. I have been crucified, yes. I have suffered as no other man has ever suffered. I have never whined nor played for sympathy. I do not ask nor seek it now. I ask only for justice, simple justice. Um, okay, I don't know. That sounds like whining to me and crucified as no man has ever suffered. Yeah, a little bit of me, 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 me. So sounds like he really hasn't changed that much. In 1934, at the age of 62, he drops dead of a brain hemorrhage while he was out buying a newspaper. Clark Hyde is buried in the family plot at Lexington, Missouri. Frances moved out of the house she shared with Clark to a nicer place in Kansas City. She never remarried. She did quite well with her inheritance. Her real estate holdings turned out to be steady investments, even during the Great Depression. She was able to maintain a nice lifestyle. She lived to the ripe old age of 85, not dying until 1964. The rest of the Swopes, well, most didn't do as well. Her little sister Sarah died in 1916. She was only 20. Lucy Lee, eloped with a man her mother Maggie disapproved of, like sister, like sister. That marriage didn't last long. Thomas Swope lost everything in the Depression, including the farm. He and his family and Lucy and her new husband both live out their lives in California, as far as I can tell. That's where they're buried. Maggie also loses much of the family fortune in the Depression. She can't afford to keep up the mansion and sells it in 1923. She spends a lot of time with her family in California, dying in 1942. When her estate is probated, it's dwindled to only $3,000. You can find most of the family's graves on findagrave.com some in California, and the rest in Jackson County, Missouri. All right, that should wrap up this case. I'm sorry it was so much longer than I thought it would be. Uh, the links for the sources I used in my research are in the show notes, as usual. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. If you would like to email me and I, I hear other hosts asking for ideas about cases. If you have an idea for a case that you'd like to have done, I, I usually prefer 
the not-so-famous cases. So if you have a suggestion for one of those, I'd love to hear it. My email is prisoncitymurders, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.